On this episode of the MC Podcast, we spend some time in the truck with Master's Choice owners Lynn and Paula Crabtree. We take a trip down memory lane and discuss what it was like to purchase the business 12 years ago and how we set a course for growth in those early years. This was a fun episode and gives a behind-the-scenes look at some previously undiscussed aspects of the Crabtree family's ownership tenure. Thanks for listening and enjoy. back to the days when Paula and I did a lot of independent consultant work for dairies. Uh, I was a dairy nutritionist and she and I, um, I, I was I was working for um, the old Mormon feed manufacturing company uh, that merged with ADM and was a, was a dairy specialist nutritionist for Mormons and ADM and uh, it, it kind of, it kind of evolved into some uh, economic depression in our area with with a couple of really dry years in a row and um, we, we experienced two really hard droughts actually about three in the early 80s uh, really difficult years wiped out a lot of young farmers <clears throat> our area of southern Illinois the the dairy there was populated with young farmers and so we took a lot of dairy out of the area um, and so uh, Paula and I began to uh, uh, be, be regularly requested from ADM that we move into an area that was going to be a lot more heavily dairy populated. They were having to stretch us out too far. I was moving too many miles to be able to cover uh, dairy back in those days to be economically efficient for them to have a specialist in the area. So. We, we believed that the, a move was inevitable uh, and that eventually we were going to have to do that and we likewise uh, had been praying about that for some time. Every time they'd make a request, we knew that our roots were in southern Illinois and that's where God was planting us and where he wanted us to stay, raise our family, and uh, that there was work for us to do there for, for him and for his kingdom. And so um, we knew that moving uh, was probably something that made sense from a business standpoint, from work standpoint. It didn't make sense to us uh, as it related to our uh, our relationship with the Lord. And so uh, we thought we'd better begin to look for something different. And so we developed a consulting business that was kind of an over-the-shoulder approach um, that we, we didn't, we weren't, we, we were never going to be the initial uh, nutrition consultant package on a farm because we knew that we couldn't cover enough ground and live in southern Illinois to make that work so uh, we instituted a new kind of a, of a system where uh, we developed software that would help analyze uh, what was going on on a, on a dairy farm and, and use the, the skills and the resources of the nutritionist that was on the farm and if, uh, and a, dairy, if a dairy farmer so desired they could employ us for what we called an over-the-shoulder approach where we would come in and we would look at what's being done on the farm, the work that the nutritionist on the farm was doing, and, um, and work with the on-farm nutritionist to be able to uh, arrive at, at, at the position 
uh, of feeding cows that was the most efficient and effective for that dairy farm. Back in those days, a lot of the um, a lot of the nutritionists on farm were working for various feed companies, and they had motivation to to promote certain products uh, that came from byproducts that they had particular control over. For example, it's not like today where most of your nutrition groups are independents that work strictly for the farm. Um, these these guys were were uh, motivated to sell a lot of feed. There wasn't anything wrong with that. That was how they got paid. Was commission on feed sales. Um, and so this this over the shoulder approach that we developed uh, was um, was one where we wouldn't work directly with the farmer because we didn't want to embarrass the nutritionist on the farm. But we would look at all of the diets. We would look at the uh, we would look at this, the the uh, the analysis of the cows and the management that was delivered. It was you know the this filling out the software, filling out the questionnaires for the software. It took a few hours, uh, but we had a pretty good picture of the farm that we could look at. Then I would look at diets and balance those, and I would come back and we have a conference with the on-farm nutritionist and ask him why we were doing things a certain way or a particular way and, and make suggestions that might be more efficient for the farm. Worked really well uh, because we didn't, try to, we didn't try to step in front of the nutritionist. The nutritionists weren't threatened. Um, you know, we would, we would understand why. You know, I've worked for a feed company. I understood why they did things a certain way. Uh, if, it was in, if it was in the farm's best interest that we do something a little differently, talk to the nutritionist and try to determine you know, how we might be able to work together where we could benefit where he still, where he still um, you know, got adequately compensated for the work that he did on the farm, uh, but yet it wasn't costing the farm an excessive amount of money. So uh, we wound up with over a thousand clients uh, in, that, in that thing and, and it far exceeded our expectations. And so we were working with dairy farms all across the country. I mean, the news spread pretty fast. What we were doing, people liked it very nominal amount of money that we charged for that service, uh, provided a lot of good information, and um, balanced diets all the way from, from calves to dry cows to uh, growing heifers to the lactating groups, and, uh, and encouraged different management schemes. So it was a good deal for, for everybody. So say a lot of that to say this, we were working with some farms over in Missouri, and um, Along with many, along with farms in many other states, but what was significant about the Missouri farms is that they, is that there was a pocket of them over there that, that I couldn't work, I couldn't balance. Um, I tried to make suggestions to improve their, uh, their performance, and man, we would just, uh, I could make their cows sick, uh, I could, um, I could, you know, I could, uh, I could make them make performance worse um, but uh, I couldn't I couldn't get them to milk and uh, so rather than just give up on them I made some visits over there to uh, to Missouri to those farms long story short they uh, or shorter anyway is that uh, is that they all had one thing in common and that they were feeding this little company that nobody would ever heard of called Master's Choice that was the corn that they were that they were raising for silage and some uh, high moisture corn situations, the earlids, and so forth. And um, so begin to look at that corn through the lab, and we weren't seeing anything unusual about it. Um, work with various labs and say, you know, th there's got to be some kind of a denominator here because this is, you know, this uh, corn's just not working. And back in those days, 
we're just beginning to identify that there were differences in fiber. We look at a forged sample and if it had a certain amount of NDF, uh, neutral digestible fiber in it, then we would make certain um, would make certain estimates on how well that 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 forage would feed based on fiber, and and the country was coming to be aware that there were differences in that fiber, that some was more digestible than others, and so kind of suspicion to maybe that was a situation with this corn, uh, but we couldn't, we had a hard time proving it. Finally, wound up with a lab up at Fulton, Illinois, at the Agri King lab uh, up there, Anna Lab, and uh, talking with a Dr. Binga up there. That, that their nutritionists had run into the same problem balancing that corn and that uh, they'd begin to look a little more extensively at it and he had a lot of unique tests that they had ran on that corn which allowed us to see that it was very unique. So spent a lot of time to answer that question but um, it, it was kind of a, of, a, of a long and drawn out process for us. It was, a, it was a process that took over a year for us to be able to um, actually accurately analyze and to correct um, but but, the, but the, what we found was that this corn is more digestible uh, we knew how good the fiber was which was pretty good but what we didn't know was that the grain digestibility was was uh, far exceeding that of what we were finding in the in, in the conventional corn genetics that were used for corn silage back in that day so we we'd take some grain out of the diet we you know, we'd uh, reduce some of the more expensive parts of that, of the components of that diet, and the cows would, would not only bounce back, but they would go up in milk. It was really unique, and uh, uh, we could get them to perform very well, but starch levels that we typically ran back in those days, 25, 30% starch in the diet, we couldn't run those with master's choice. Uh, we had to pull the starch back to the 20, 25% levels, which was kind of a, a new deal for that period of time history so um, that's what that's what the beginnings with master's choice were we kind of discovered it um, not by accident I guess but more you know as a, as a response to um, doing our jobs and and, uh, and consulting on on the dairy farms that we serve and although this little company wasn't very big it was just it was just doing a few bags of corn uh, wherever we'd find that uh, where we find that corn in a pocket uh, the people were pretty happy with it, and uh, once you figured out how to feed it, they were really happy with it. And so uh, we had um, we carried that forward um, with some other seed um, wholesalers and with uh, some some groups uh, that were uh, that were distributing. Uh, higher quality seeds, higher energy feeds, uh, feed through the seeds that they were selling, and um, begin to um, begin to lead them to understand that there was a difference in that corn and, and it had nutritional enhancements. So, it uh, just kind of started a journey for us that uh, that uh, led us to a relationship with the previous owner of Master's Choice, a man by the name of John Rucker in um, West Central Illinois and uh, became a very good family friend uh, through that relationship. Um, we helped him to see some of the differences in his corn so as he began to promote it around the country he knew a little bit more how to feed it so we brought the nutritional side of that business to play uh, for him 
and out of his gratitude um, back to us um, as he as he looked towards retirement um, he was looking for somebody to carry on that that uh, that legacy of master's choice and so uh, we became the target of his affections he made it possible for us to be able to buy the business and uh, it's grown significantly since that day so to tell this story something that a lot of people probably don't know is that he hounded you to buy master's choice for a while before we actually bought it he had he had approached you multiple times before we before we said yes correct I farmed back in the back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s and in the late 70s you know the thing that you wanted to do was you wanted to get as big as you could as fast as you could because things were really going well and so we were out uh, growing our businesses and as a young farmer you know I was um, was adding more cattle we was feeding more hogs we was adding acreage um, we were working hard growing our growing our um, enterprise um, but we did it with a lot of with a lot of debt. Uh, we were leveraged pretty heavily back in those days. Lending institutions weren't afraid to do that. Everything was really, you know, was really going well. Uh, the more you did, the more money you made, and so they were they were easy to loan money. So we had too much money borrowed. Interest rates were really high. Um, a lot of you know had, there was some interest in that 15 to 20 percent range, and. Um, so, of course, when, when, when you hit some very difficult years there in the early 80s, uh, actually near impossible years in those early 80s, when it was, was really hard, um, wasn't, too hard to, wasn't too hard to lose money and go broke. So Paul and I did. We went broke in the, in the early 80s and uh, farming and uh, uh, just, just couldn't generate enough revenue to make things work. So we kind of gave it up, and that's when I went to work off the farm as a as a uh, as a feed salesman, and then wound up uh, being uh, being brought online as a as a nutrition consultant specialist for dairy. Um, what we um, what we didn't expect um, or didn't anticipate was was how difficult that it was living through that period of time when you were so concerned about paying your bills and and uh, and keeping your reputation intact. In uh, when you're going broke and just couldn't make things, couldn't make ends meet. So when posed with um, the opportunity, you know, to spend um, millions of dollars on something like a seed business, uh, that scared me to death. Um, we didn't have the resources to do it, number one, and so we would be totally dependent on, on borrowed capital again. And that didn't work out too well for us the last time, so I was very reluctant to step off into debt again. Uh, we had uh, we had things going and, and, and working for pretty well for us, you know. We, we had regular income again, and and we weren't worried about weren't worried about the bills and and uh, to to risk that and 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 remember all the sleepless nights and and uh, waking up in cold sweat and all that just was not what I was looking forward to. But you want me to tell you how we wound up with it? I, I would like that. Yeah, I was. I was there. You, you, Andrew, were definitely she was there. there, and and Paula was definitely there. And between the two of you, you convinced me that uh, you had been praying about this and that it was the right thing to do, and that God was involved with it. And I had, I, uh, 
I was I was more concerned about myself than I was about uh, pleasing God, and and I was more concerned about my frets and worries and and things than I was about uh, seeking God's wisdom. And so uh, naturally, when uh, when you two begin to try to convince me that it was the right thing to do, uh, I eventually had to had to turn back to God and ask Him, you know, is, what what kind of a move do, is this? Is this the right thing? And then of course. Uh, he wound up uh, wound up revealing to me that certainly it was a move we were supposed to make. How old were you when when we purchased Master's Choice? About fifty. Early fifties. Yep. Did that play into your initial reluctance to start something completely new in your fifties? Oh heck no. No. No 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 no. Um, I'm, I've always been one to to aim high and have high expectations. Um, it's not just shoot for the stars and settle for something less. I, I've never, I've never wanted to settle for anything in my life. Uh, I've always felt like, you know, if, if it's achievable and it's God's will, then then why limit yourself? Too many, too many people today in our culture uh, decide what they can and can't do, and they're willing to place limits on that. And uh, I've never been that guy. So no, I've. I'm, I'm in my I'm in my 60s, approaching my mid 60s now. Um, I'm ready to start a new adventure if that's what I feel like I need to do. So, mom and I yes. talked you into doing it. Yeah, you did. Uh, so what? we assumed control of the business in 2005. Papers were signed officially November 2005, wasn't it, Paula? Yes, we signed papers on my birthday that year. What Lynn didn't say earlier was that we had always had a dream of owning our own business and having a family business and had been praying about that for several years when this just kind of came out of nowhere. And so to me, it was an answer to prayer um, of that dream that I think God had placed in our hearts earlier. So it just, it all clicked. It made sense to me that it was... It was God that had had uh, put this together for us, and we couldn't turn our backs on it. F family farm was what I always assumed that that was going to be. I, that we were going to we were going to our families were going to be farming together, and and uh, you know, the grandparents and the and the and the kids and the grandkids would all be you know working the ground together, working the land together, livestock together, and that was kind of what I always figured. And we got that door slammed on us, and or uh, closed on us and and, uh, and another door opened, so pretty neat. So 2005, uh, I guess, was it, that would make it spring of 2006 was our first production? Actually, no, we worked with John on the crop in 2005. He was gracious enough to let us determine what we felt like we could get done there in terms of uh, uh, getting a crop sold, so he, um, he forwarded the money for the crop, allowed us to to, to kind of help um, uh, come up with a production plan for that year and uh, helped us see that we could get that crop out, produced and, and grown. So actually it was the spring of 2005 was our first crop, although we weren't the official owners of the business until November of 2005 after that crop had been harvested. So we clearly couldn't have, I mean, people listening to this 
may have heard this story before about us acquiring the business, but uh, probably never been said on the record that there's no way our family could have afforded the business if it weren't for the grace of John Rucker to make that so. Paul and I had jobs and we were we were paying the bills, but but we had no assets. We we were broke. Um, there was no way we could have done that without without John's help and um, his graciousness and uh, and then you know I know that I know that the business was overwhelming I mean it was it was um, it was starting to grow and what John wanted to do was breed corn and he didn't want to have to travel to try to market it or anything and it was a meager beginning I mean, you look back and you know you think that it's you know from where it was at that it, it wouldn't be that difficult but it was it was it was a big change for him but rather than just bail on the business uh, he sold it to us. Um, I tried to convince him to maintain part ownership because I said, John, this is going to grow. You know what? Very unique, and it's going to, and the word's going to get out, and people are going to want this. Maintain part interest in the business, and and he said, No, I want you. I want you to take it. I want you to make it happen, and I want it to be yours. Um, but he he stayed on as our head plant breeder for a few more years until he was ready to hand off the baton. Um, to the next generation um, plant breeders uh, working with the with the genetic base and um, and he, he was just awesome I mean he it was never a time that I felt like there was any jealousy that he had you know that he sold the business and that it was doing so well uh, he was sincerely pleased about that you know he made it he made it possible for us to be able to to buy it I mean we own a, a huge debt to John you know for for what he did for us and, and, and being able to um, to not only own the business but to help us to grow it you know because seamlessly was able to maintain you know the the, the, the breeding of the of the hybrids that were going to go into the lineup in the next six you know the next years and that lineup was growing every year you know when we bought the business there was four or five hybrids in the lineup you know today I don't know what do we got Alex 30 plus maybe hybrids in the lineup and uh, and that's a result of the work that was done the last 10 years it's not the result of the work that we're doing today those things won't be evident for a few more years um, but um, but those discoveries in R&D have uh, happened and, and John was largely responsible for for a lot of that and, uh, and how it unfolded too so yeah to say that we couldn't have done it without John was uh, would be a, a, a wild understatement So fast forward, well, actually, let's, let's go back to November of 2005. One of my favorite parts when we tell this story for people, um, and surely has never been stated on the record, uh, when we started the business, the office was in the smallest bedroom at Jersey Mom's house. Yeah, the And, like, smallest bedroom was 10 by 10? 10 by 10. Yeah, 10 by 10, and it was, uh, of course, we had, we had two sons, Andrew and Caleb. They each had a bedroom, um, and uh, downstairs, upstairs was Paula's and my, Paul and I had a bedroom, and there was also a, a small bedroom, at, a, a 10 by 10 room with a closet. It had a closet, um, and uh, and we used that for for the my office. That's where we kind of, that's where we kind of did, um, um the nutrition work that we did, that was the place that we worked there at that. 
September 10th, then. And then we became big shots when I moved out. Caleb took my room, and Caleb's old room was bigger than 10 by 10. That required a lot of change. Man, we thought we would hit the big time. In the, in, in, in the 10 by 10, we had enough room for a table in the middle, and I had a chair on one side of the table, and Paul had a chair on the other side. You know, one of those one of those uh, white, uh, it was a six foot long table, about two foot wide, and and uh, that was my and her desk that we shared. Oh, and we had pictures of those, those days. Yeah, well, it's it uh, that space is still there, but we've taken the walls out, and we've included it into the uh, into the rest of the uh, the common living room and dining room area now. Uh, but, uh, um, and, and Paul insisted on putting a, a bigger window in there, so it's got a it's got a bay window in that area, which was the which was the original office space. But we moved out when when you moved out. We moved you all the way out in the backyard. Yeah. Uh, we had a we had a um, a machine storage shed out there, and we just kind of uh, closed part of that in and made an apartment for you, so that when you were off to the local junior college. Um, you had a little independence uh, as well, and so we moved you out there, and your bedroom became available, and we we went into that, which was a 12 by 14, and had a and you had a closet all the way across one wall. We thought we'd just died and gone to heaven because big time. Oh man, we went down there and we put countertop all the way around three walls of that bedroom, and uh, we had we had so many possible desk stations. While well, there was there was three or four. There was like five people that worked oh, out of that bedroom. Oh my goodness! You know, we thought that we thought that that was a you, me, mom, Heath, and Jerry. Yep, first employees, Heath and Jerry Hayes. And then uh, as we grew, we had to put mom's desk out into the living room in the basement. Yep. So that we could create another space. And then, then that's when things start to really pick up. We moved out into the uh, the pole barn. Understand those first years, Paula did absolutely everything. I. I drove around the country and just asked people to try our corn. I was, I was the, uh, I was the only salesman, and we we began to work with with seed um, distributors, and and uh, they begin to to uh, distribute and sell our seed. But I was the guy that would go around and help equip them, and uh, talk about all of the differences in the corn. And uh, Paula was at home, and and she did all of the accounting, all of the billing, all of the accounts payable and receivable. She did all of the marketing, put together all the marketing pieces, uh, did the did the work for that. Um, she she answered all the calls, helped line up all the appointments, all the meetings, hotel accommodations, everything she did out of that office. And and uh, then and it was it was pretty neat when when Heath came on and Jerry came on because Jerry began to pick up on some of the production. Uh, re responsibilities and shipping. The logistics too and helped me with that. So yeah. that was a big load off my shoulders at the time. He was growing parent seeds in southern Illinois where we were trying to maintain some, some, um, uh, trying to keep clean seed clean um, and um, uh, just handled a lot, a lot of the logistics. But then Heath came on and he handled a lot of the uh, was an administrative assistant role for you, Paula, where he was he was really good with uh, with software and some some of the uh, some of the things that we were doing in marketing. He was he was really quick and he helped a lot with with uh, promoting uh, materials that we would need and 
and uh, technical bulletins and, and helping to write some of the text. And, and uh, so that was also a big help, kind of relieved you in a, in a lot of areas. But you had it all for a long time. So we had several more building projects after that to take us where we are now. But let's talk, talk for a second about how, you know, brand new business that we've got. Um, what was it like in the early days trying to convince the customer base to, to try a little independent tiny seed company from Illinois? There's a, there's a little known, um, there's a little known um, communi communication network out there in the country today. It's called the Amish Internet. And uh, so, uh, as it just so happens, some of our early beginnings were, were, were with some of the uh, Amish and, and even a lot of Mennonite uh, communities uh, that tried our corn. And, and they were very generous to share good news and their experiences with their friends and neighbors and family. Uh, that that was not only in that particular uh, area, uh, but but likewise um, those neighbors, friends, family that were in other areas around. So our, our business grew pretty quickly by word of mouth, um, and and that was that was important to us, very significant um, to us and to our growth. Those a lot of those clients were small farms, and they didn't buy a lot of corn, but uh, very loyal and, um, and so we did our best to be able to educate them on how to how to take advantage of the corn the best that we knew how and, uh, with the nutritional advantages that it carried um, so that was a that was a big benefit um, six bags at a time right six bag challenge Paula came up with a marketing slogan called the six bag challenge and uh, just um, a lot of six row planters back then and uh, so just, uh, just you know, that planter, start that planter out, or when that planter's getting going, just, just drop six bags in it or drop a couple of bags into, uh, into three of the units was kind of the, was kind of the idea. Plant it next to your favorite and uh, let us show you just uh, what we could do. But uh, it, was all about, it was all about just asking them to try us. Um, let us show you that, that to be nutritionally enhanced, you didn't have to give up agronomics, you didn't have to give up yield. In fact, we could yield and out yield with the best ones, um, and, and some of the unique differences about our corn. Uh, you know, you don't you don't chop us real high. You know, there's a lot of density in that stock. There's a lot of sugars in that stock. We wanted you to bring those into the fermentation that they had value that other corn didn't. Uh, that that uh, with our corn, it wasn't necessary to try to try to grind it as fine or to chop it uh, uh, as fine as what uh, a lot of people were doing. We wanted a little more length to chop, get a little more healthier diets, uh, so that um, just different differences in our corn that we encourage people to change. What are we forgetting, Mom? What part of the story have we omitted? I just, I remember um, the day that we signed the papers back in 2005. It was in November. Shortly after that, Lynn left to go on the road, and it was just like, here you go, do with this what you want to. <laughs> and he went off on the road selling and, and trying to convince people to to purchase Master's Choice and to ex 
explain the difference that we'd seen. And uh, I didn't see him for, for weeks at a time. Um, he would be gone most of the next couple of months, but would be home on the weekend a lot. But um, those were some tough times in the beginning, uh, just trying to, you know, get everybody to try our product and me staying home, him on the road, uh, kids still at home, being chauffeur, mom, um, you know. But still, I feel like God was in it and, um, you know, he made it all work for us. So just answered prayer, got us through it all. I would be, uh, I would be shocked if I don't already know the answer to this question, but for either of you, no regrets? None for me. No. No regrets. And I think that if Caleb was here, he would agree with us. No, no regrets. I think we've done this uh, in a way that honors our Lord and that, that we are all pretty proud of and and just excited. You know, we, we we're, what, 12 years into this almost, so I think the next 12 years are going to be uh, every bit as exciting as the first 12. Oh, yeah. Really neat things happening. I mean, it's really... It's, it's really exciting to see how it's grown and uh, expanded in so many areas. It's, it's been a blessing. And uh, as we've hired staff and people have come on, um, you know, it, it's been a blessing to be a part of their lives and, and then be a part of the Master's Choice team. We have a wonderful staff of people working for us. Agreed. Well, that, they say, is how the story goes. The rest of the story. Yeah, to, to be continued. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MC Podcast with Lynn, Paula, and Andrew Crabtree. Check back every Monday to hear new episodes or visit our YouTube channel to see them in their video form. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.